All right, well, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin there. You have your own translation, a place you can follow along and ask us questions. This morning, we're kind of continuing on into a a semi-new series. I sort of snuck in on you last week with introducing it with Jonah, kind of summing up our missions conference. This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 11 through 16. So if you want to go ahead and pull up your apps there on your smartphones and get that queued up or open your Bibles or it's in your bulletin for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Let's go ahead and go together to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we do rejoice to come before you, standing only on the righteousness of Christ, our solid rock. And we ask, Father God, that once again you would use that rock to break our hard hearts, to give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, hearts changed by your grace so that we can worship you, know you, and live out your kingdom here on this earth. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And so between now and Easter, we're going to sort of be in a, a, a series that we're roughly calling uh, the gospel and prejudice. Not just the easy word prejudice about racial prejudice, but just all sorts of prejudices we have in our hearts and how the gospel addresses those. Last week, we saw with the book of Jonah <clears throat> how there was some nationalism there mixed with a little bit of racism, and it caused Jonah to completely deny God's call. And when he did finally submit and go and preach the grace of God, Nineveh actually repented, and Jonah was angry. His hatred in his heart actually spilled out, and he had it out with God, we saw in chapter 4 of Jonah. But God showed Jonah his own selfishness and then brought Jonah to a point of repentance. And we know that even though the book ends with Jonah in the middle of a temper tantrum, we know that Jonah was brought back to a point of repentance because the only way we know all those details of the book of Jonah, the inner workings of Jonah's heart, what he was actually thinking is because Jonah himself is the source. He wrote it. Having come to a point of repentance, he wrote this showing his own foolishness. But now, kind of springboarding off of that, we're going to be going to the book of Ephesians now. And the book of Ephesians is, as we just saw Paul traveling through Ephesus very uh, briefly, the book uh, Ephesians is a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's a mixed church. It's in a major Gentile city, but there are Jewish believers there. And Paul shows in this passage the unity that Christians have in Jesus Christ. That that unity, that reality of Jesus Christ is actually the bigger aspect of their lives than the various other ethnic and cultural and religious differences that they have. Paul makes the case that this whole separation of it doesn't matter what the specific issue is, we can sum it all up with the separation of us versus them. That kind of tribalism just simply has no place in the church. Because we are actually a completely new humanity, a new kind of human. And so those old distinctions don't matter. And so with that background, let's look together at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. This is God's Word. Therefore... 
remember that at that time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is God's Word. And so we're going to see here throughout this text that we separate because we are haters until God Himself kills the hate and breaks that separation. And that gives us our main thought for today. I kind of phrased it in the form of a question for us today. We can discuss this over lunch or perhaps later on in the week during family devotions. You can look at this. Here's what we're going to ask of this text today. If we hated each other because we first hated God, shouldn't we now love each other if we love God? That's what this text is going to challenge us with today. So let's look at this. First thing we're going to see in this text is that Paul shows us that sin builds a wall of separation and hatred. Now, I kind of picked up in the middle of a passage here. There's a lot going on around this. But suffice it to say that Paul shows the depths of the hatred between Jew and Gentile in the ancient world. Paul shows that by using shocking language. He would be reprimanded by most traditional churches today. He would be reprimanded by somebody if he said this from our pulpit. Because the word there, if you notice in verse 11, where it has it even in quotes, the circumcision, it's actually not the word circumcision. It's the word foreskin. Anybody want to be called that? It was an insult. It was a crass profane insult that the Jews use to refer to non-Jews. It's clear disdain. It's clear hatred of another race, of another culture. It is hard for us to understand the hostility between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. it's, It's hard for us to understand. But it was intense. It was fierce. And it went both ways. The Jews really thought they were a superior people. They were God's chosen race after all. Other people were not as special. And popular culture in Rome knew the Jews thought this way. And so they reciprocated by hating them right back. The Gentiles, especially Greco-Roman culture here, divided the whole world into themselves and their word for foreigners, their word for non-us. We still have it in our English language today. Barbaroi. Barbarians. So you were either us or you weren't them. Perhaps those of you who have any 
Dutch backgrounds, you know the saying that, you, that comes from the Netherlands, if you're not Dutch, you ain't much. That's how the Romans thought of everybody. You're a Roman or you're a barbarian. And so there's this natural hostility. You got the Jews saying, hey, you're either one of us or you're a foreskin. Oh yeah, well, you're either one of us or you're a barbarian. There's this natural hostility, this natural barrier between us and them. Paul calls it in verse 14, a wall of hostility. And they, in a way that we don't, would immediately recognize what he's talking about. When he says hostility, that's a word that comes from their version of the Old Testament, from the story of the fall. If you remember, God created Adam and Eve in this perfect garden. He gave them everything they needed. And he said, you can have everything you want, just stay away from this one tree. And because people are wired the way they're wired, instead of seeing the incredible gracious gift, the 99%, they were fixated on the 1%. And why can't we have that? And so there was a temptation there. And Satan came in the form of a serpent and he tempted them. He got them to think God was depriving them. He got them to think that that, that God was going to hurt them somehow. And so they grabbed it and they brought sin and death and sickness and curses into the world. And God comes and he addresses this situation and he recognizes that this cannot stand. My people that I've made, they can't eat of the tree of life now in this state. I've got to cut them off from this. I've got to make sure they don't feel fulfilled here. And so as part of the curse, God pronounces on them Genesis 3.15. The verse that sets all of scripture. God himself says, they says, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians, in order to justify themselves and to sound really smart, call this the the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel, the first good news. Right here, the very third chapter of the Bible, we have a hint, just a whiff of what's cooking in the kitchen of Jesus Christ coming. Where God says, I'm going to bring someone from the woman who's going to crush the head of this serpent. Oh, you're going to get him on the heel, but your head's going to go splat. But for our purposes today, that word enmity, in the Greek, it translates hostility, and it's that word. And so what Paul says is, Paul says, look, this whole Jew-Gentile thing, don't you realize it's an expression of this hatred, this hostility that goes all the way back to the very beginning See, and this tells us something when we look at this verse. We recognize that God himself put the hostility into the world. He put the enmity there. It's part of his curse on a sin-sick world. So that we won't be completely fulfilled here. So that we will long for something better. So that we will see this hostility and be like, I I wish that weren't here. So there's hostility between peoples. From the very beginning, God has said, I'm going to put hostility between your offspring and her offspring, between groups of people. It's going to be there. But this passage in Ephesians also shows us that there's hostility. There's intense discord. Let's even call it hatred. Between God and people. We hated God. The famous reformer Martin Luther one time, before he really saw the gospel, was asked, he was going through intense 
confession as a Roman Catholic monk, and he was he never felt secure in his faith, and he was asked, Brother Martin, don't you love God? And if you know the story, you know the quote where I'm going, he, he, he looks at this person and goes, love him? I hate him! Because Martin Luther got the holiness of God. He got the sinfulness of man, and what he didn't get was how those two things come together. And so he was trying to earn his way towards God, and he knew in his heart he couldn't. And he's like, you are so unfair! Many of you in the room have probably said something like that. Because there's a hostility between sinners and God. Here's how Paul says it. Look with me at verse 12 of our text today. Here's how Paul says it. Talking to these Gentiles, he says, Look, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's theological language. Let's earth you that up a little bit. Remember that at that time, you were separated from your spouse. You were completely alienated from your country and a stranger to your own family. No hope in the world. Here's how one person defined it. He "He shows us people separated from the Creator, that they're listless wanderers, vagabonds on the earth with no future to live for. It's a picture of intense discord. I and mean, look at that. This is who he says we were. Look, you, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from God's people. You were strangers to any kind of hope. That's who we were. That's an intense discord and hatred. You know, illegal immigration is a big topic. It has been for a long time. Trump is getting more and more famous for talking about how he's going to build his big wall. But as we just saw in Genesis and as we see here, Scripture says... That actually we are the foreigners who are kept out. That's the hostility. That's the hostility not just in verse 14, but if you look in verse 16 in your, in your bulletins there. That's what the, the wall of hostility there is. The wall of hostility between us and God. You see, sin builds walls of separation and hatred. Separating peoples from peoples, and it separates peoples from God. But that's not how it ends, thankfully, because we see that the gospel breaks the wall and kills the hatred. Right after verse 12, you get verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What an amazing promise. He shows all this separation, this discord, this hatred. He says, but guess what? In Jesus Christ, you're brought near. The divide was so significant that it takes the death of Jesus Christ to overcome it. But he does it gladly to bring close his lost family. I would note that powerful phrase in there, in Christ. That is a phrase that is throughout the New Testament. In fact, I would encourage you in your personal Bible reading to have a separate color, maybe bright blue or something. And every time you see that phrase, in Christ, highlight it. Because that's the essence of the gospel, is in those two words. It's not in the teachings of Jesus. It's not in following Jesus. It's in being united to Jesus. That Christians have salvation. We are made one with Christ so that what is true of Him becomes true of us. That is how we can say things like God sees us as righteous because of His Son. 
Because we're united to Christ by faith. And so he sees not our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We're united to him by faith. And so he sees not our death for our sin. Because the wages of sin is death. No, he sees the death of Jesus for our sin. Because we're united to him. That's Christianity. We've got to get that fact. You know, I do a lot of marriages as a, as a pastor. I've done a lot of weddings as a pastor. You know, and the, our denomination has certain rules that I have to follow to be in good standing. Our, our, our church has some rules to follow to use this building. Our session has some rules I must follow when it comes to marriage to be part of the session. And I personally have some rules about who and what I will marry. One of my personal rules is, and please don't start throwing things at me, I won't marry people if the wife is going to hyphenate her last name. And of course, it's because I'm a chauvinist, right? No, it's not because I believe in patriarchy. It's none of those things. It's because marriage exists as a sign of the gospel. It's the union of a man and a wife into one flesh because God said, I'm going to create this thing called marriage at the very end of Genesis chapter 1 to show them what my love looks like. Marriage exists primarily not for our happiness, but to preach the gospel to the world. And so, whenever someone chooses to hyphenate their last name like that, either subtly or sometimes completely obliquely, it shows a lack of submission. And a, I'm not fully in union with this man. And it destroys the metaphor that marriage exists to be. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that. Okay, That's just my rule. The point is this, that marriage reflects the union we have with Christ. In the gospel, we are completely brought into union with Christ. If it's only a partial union with Christ, if we're holding back a little bit, if we're hyphenating our last name a little bit, that's not Christianity. If we're not completely found in Christ so that what is true of Him is true of us, His obedience, His righteousness, His humility, if that's not true of us, we have no basis to stand before a holy God. See, but thanks be to God that Jesus is the gospel. And when we confess Him as Lord, we are brought into union with Christ. Therefore, Jesus is our peace. He is the gospel. The gospel is that we get Christ. Don't abstract the gospel into some sort of beliefs away from the person of Christ. No, the gospel is that you get Jesus. He is the manifestation of God's love for sinners. That's why verse 14 is worded the way it is. Look with me at verse 14. Paul says what? He himself is our peace. Jesus is our shalom, that Hebrew word that means wholeness, unity, just accord. The discord and dysfunction of sin is done away with. Why? Because Jesus was what? He, was, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, the radical grace of Christ just tears down hostility between people groups. Specifically, that word both there refers right back to the verse 12, 11 and 12. Jews and Gentiles. He has now made both of you one in Him. Because of the union they have with Christ, check this out. They have a union with each other that's just as powerful. 
That's why we say things like the Apostles' Creed, even though it's almost 2,000 years old, written by previous Christians. Because they're in Jesus, and we're in Jesus, and so we're together in this thing. We have a union with them as well. We are brought together and made into one. Really, how they would have seen this and how we should see this is what Paul is saying is this is an entirely new way to be a human being. No longer the ancient. Everybody knew. You Look, you're either a, a Roman or you're a barbarian. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. No, Paul says, uh-uh. You're now one Christian. It's a new race. It's a new ethnicity. It's a new humanity. See, God creates a new kind of person in Christ. A person reconciled, not just to God, but a person reconciled across racial, across ethnic, across nationalistic lines. No more strangers or aliens to each other. The death of Christ has destroyed the separation between peoples. Now, that's the theological principle. Let me say it in a way that's going to challenge us today. We in this room, we have more in common. We have a closer bond with a dark-skinned, born-again Syrian refugee on our shores than with an unregenerate fellow white American. Amen. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power for us to really believe that. See, the gospel breaks down and kills the hostility between people. It breaks down the wall of hostility between people. And it says here that it actually kills the hostility between people and God. And that is the basis. And it's so important we get that. Peace among people never happens without peace between people and God coming first. That famous passage that's on the United Nations, right? Beating our swords into plowshares. Well, the whole context of that passage is that God himself comes as king, squashes all opposition, and by his power, he enforces peace. He makes the peace, and then we reflect the peace. So too, the gospel comes and makes us right with God, and then we express express that in our relationships. Verses 15 and 16 show us how that works. Paul says, basically, Jesus is the gospel. He unites his people together by first uniting them to himself, by forgiving them of their sin and making them righteous. That's what happens. Which is really crazy if you think about how we respond to that. Because we in church world, we love to divide, don't we? Well, are you traditional or are you contemporary? Is your church formal or informal? Is your church black or white? Are you an organ church or are you a guitar church? Are you a clean-shaven church or are you a beard church? I've heard that one, not making it up. See, but the church is supposed to be a place of unity and peace in Christ. Boys and girls have been using some big words here, but I want to make sure you get this. Maybe you can help explain it to mom and dad, okay? So let's take out your children's bulletin here, boys and girls, and let's look together at your verses 15 and 16. It says this. 
Jesus' death means we don't have to earn our way to God. So Jews and non-Jews, by God's grace, are brought together into a new peaceful family. We have peace with each other only because we have peace with God. The death of Jesus destroyed our hatred of God. You see, boys and girls, we're brought together into a new people because God has gotten rid of the hatred in our hearts for Him. And so the Holy Spirit then comes and gets rid of the hatred in our hearts for other people. And for all of us, we will never see prejudice go away if we don't get the gospel. Because if we think that God is impressed with our law keeping, that we are in his favor by being really good, we cannot help but separate ourselves into others. If we think that it's based on something we do, on how moral we are, how good we are, or how sanctified we are, whatever we call it, we think that God is impressed with that, then we are going to separate ourselves first and foremost into the good guys and the bad guys, however we define that. And we judge the bad guys. But we're not finished yet. No, no, no. This is church world. So now that we have the good guys, I mean, look around and we have the good guys and the better guys, right? And of course, we're in the better guy group and we look at them like, y'all need to suck it up. Come on, we judge them a little bit. But then we go even more. We have our little group. We look around And we have the better guys and the best guys. And this is the one where most of us are like, oh, I wish I was more like them. I'm not like the best guys. I'm only here. And so instead of judging them, we're envious of them, right? And so to make ourselves feel better, we go back and judge the good guys because we're better. They're best. And guilt, I'm better than you. And you know you do this. You know you do it. There's no peace between us because we're not resting in the gospel. We're not resting in the fact that God says, I approve of you. I accept you as completely holy and completely righteous. Now, why can God do that? Remember, because Jesus is what? Completely holy, completely righteous, completely accepted by his father. And so when we confess faith in Christ, what happens? We're united to him. What's true of him is true of us. If you're in Jesus Christ, God feels towards you as he feels towards his son. His son whom he ripped open the sky and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God says that about you if you're in union with Christ. If only we believe that, right? Because even now in our hearts, something rises up and says, that's not true. You're a sinner. You should feel guilty. But if we have union with Christ, what is true of him is true of us. And that peace, that acceptance, then floods out to peace and acceptance with other people. There's no room for a competitive spirit. There's no room for thinking we're better because there's nothing good inside of me. I'm accepted by God because of what Jesus has done alone. And when we believe that, we are changed by that and it changes everything. When we have peace with God, we can have peace with each other. Don't you want to live in that kind of world? I mean, real unity among people. Racial unity. Ethnic unity. We will never have it without the gospel. Because the hostility between peoples is too great. But the good news of Christianity that's in this text is that Jesus 
killed the hostility between people and God by letting hostile people kill him in God's name. So his people could be united by him. Do you know Jesus like that? Because that's first. That's primary. That's of utmost importance. Are you reconciled to your heavenly Father by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in living the life you should have lived and dying the death you should have died? Is that true? Because all these other things come next. Other things such as, are we builders of walls or are we breakers of walls? Do we as a church stand for unity or the separation of peoples? You know, you can't get around the fact that this text is about racial prejudice. If you've got one group calling another group a foreskin, and if you've got the other group calling them barbarians, it's the lowest form of life, there's hatred there. There's ethnic racial hatred there. And Paul is writing to, I'll make sure I don't lie to you, uh, yeah, to the saints at Ephesus. Yeah, he's writing to a church. He's not writing to them pagans out there. He's writing to born-again people right here. And as soon as I say that word, racism, our guard goes up, doesn't it? We're all lawyers looking for loopholes when it comes to things we don't like, right? Perhaps a better word is, let's call it tribalism. Maybe we should call it teamism. Here's what I mean. We're naturally attracted to people who are like us, regardless of color. On a smaller scale, we call this a clique. On a bigger scale, we're we're comfortable in our affinity groups where people think like us. That's why our churches aren't really that diverse because our personal relationships aren't really that diverse. We need to recognize from this text, really thinking about what the word hostility means, how that's got to be actively torn down. We need to recognize that racial reconciliation, even with the gospel, is not automatic. This text shows us absolutely that Jesus Christ has accomplished that. It's over. But just as you and I today fight against sins that have been defeated, we fight against lust, we fight against greed, we fight against pride, we fight against gossip, so too we must fight against racism in our hearts by the power of the gospel. We must fight for racial reconciliation in our lives. This, dear Christian, is the need of the hour. We are in a post-Christianized America. Okay? Cultural Christianity is dead, good riddance. Our culture no longer assumes the goodness of churches. Our culture no longer assumes the goodness of ministers. John Mark and I can tell you about meeting strangers how t- when, they, when it finally gets around to what you do for a living, how it's crazy how just in the last 10 years that the reaction to telling someone you're a pastor has changed from awkward acceptance to complete suspicion. It's, it's insane. But that's where our culture is. See, but our supernatural unity in Christ, our ability to overcome those kind of differences helps tear down walls of suspicion in our culture 
and make folk more willing to hear us. The church of Jesus Christ should be leading the way on these things. If we stay on the sidelines, our message will be ignored. If we stay on the sidelines, our message will be ignored. We have a very providential God who orchestrates things for His glory. And isn't it interesting that after being denied three different buildings, the first charter school in the state of South Carolina opens up its doors right across the street from us. Isn't it interesting that because of what they're doing and how they're doing it, how they're trying to specifically raise fatherless boys whose families are on welfare and they're trying to raise them out of that, how actually the opposition that that school is getting from not just one government entity but from another because that just breaks the mold, is keeps them on a shoestring budget constantly understaffed and always in need of help. Isn't it interesting that here we are with help to give? Well, let's be candid. Garden City Preparatory Academy for Boys, which is a long name, they're so different from us, aren't they? I mean, we're primarily a white church who send our kids to private schools. It's a public school. Primarily African Americans. You can't preach the gospel there. It's a public school. You can't proclaim Christ there. It's a public school. They're so different. There are so many significant reasons to say, I'm sorry, that's just not going to fit in our wheelhouse. And isn't it interesting that they've expanded and grown so much that they have officially asked us, can we rent part of your church to accommodate our students? There's so many significant reasons to say no. That's just so different. But aren't there significant reasons to say yes? We need to be sure that as we as a congregation look through that request that we're not being tribal. That we're not asking, what about our stuff? We need to make sure that in those very real concerns, we're not preaching to Orangeburg that we really don't have a gospel which makes that much of a difference when you get right down to it. Another application to think about. Racism is a very easy word to throw around. It's also a very easy word to ignore. And we need to be honest about our collective past. And what I mean by our collective past, I mean the Christian church. I mean conservative Christian churches. I mean Presbyterian churches that did nothing for the most part during the civil rights era. Conservative, Bible-believing Presbyterian churches who hired security guards to keep those folk out of our church during that time. You can look this up, by the way. People in conservative churches like ours, with beliefs like ours in Scripture, in the exclusivity of Christ. Leaders, pastors like me, I'm sorry to say, in Bible-believing Presbyterian churches used Scripture to defend and promote segregation. Put civil rights activists under church discipline in the name of Jesus. Born again Christians who are in heaven right now 
who are in union with Christ, which means they're in union with us. Our churches carry those sins into our community. Does the gospel demand that we repent of those sins that we carry, that we didn't do? Miss America, you judge a person by their own merits. Every generation starts at zero. What happens before us doesn't matter, right? You're not going to find that in Scripture very much, actually. Sins that we did not do, but we are in union with those who did. And our community knows it. Do you know that many of the black churches in Orangeburg, this is from direct conversation, this is not from, I heard, don't believe the PCA when it says the old denomination was going liberal, they were sacrificing and compromising on the scriptures as the inerrant word of God, and so in the early 70s we broke away to form a denomination that would stand on the Bible as the word of God. They look at that and they say, no, that's a cover. In the early 70s the PCUS started to integrate more and more, and so y'all got your white butts out of there. And that's a quote. And if that offends you, I refer you to verse 11 where he says foreskin. So, That's what our community believes about the PCA. Yeah, they did that theological stuff, but really they did it because they wanted to be a white denomination. It's not true. But perception is reality, unfortunately, when you're dealing with people. Our denomination has recognized this reality across the South. Our presbytery, which is now a Charleston-based presbytery, has recognized that we are based in the city where over 85% of every slave in America walked down these streets from a boat on its way to a plantation. They're recognizing it as a regional collection of churches. They are looking at ways to repent of, of, of the sins of the past. And your session is too. And we don't know what that looks like because we are trying to find the wisdom between. It's so easy to do a very sentimental gesture for PR purposes. And that's not repentance. And it's very easy to stand firm and be like, we didn't do it. They need to get over it. No. And it's, that's easy. Those are both easy. What's hard is real biblical repentance. We're with broken hearts. We own the sins of our past. Beg God and our community to forgive us and seek to move forward in the Holy Spirit. We don't know what that looks like. Will you pray for your session as we're seeking to try to be honest and candid and, and true? Will you pray for our denomination as our denomination is trying to figure out what that looks like as well? We don't know what that looks like. But we believe, verse 14, that Jesus Christ himself is our peace who brings black Christians and white Christians together to form a new humanity. Because he and his flesh has broken down the wall of hostility. So as we close, as we prepare to come to the table where we see Christ's flesh broken and his blood shed to make his people one, I ask you to think on one question that we started out with. If we hated each other because we first hated God, shouldn't we now love each other if we love God? Let's pray together. (coughs) Father God, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, your word would do its work.
Lord, it's easy to make a speech about a difficult issue and pull at people's heartstrings. And we pray that that has not happened this morning. We don't want any of that. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring us conviction where it's legitimate. And where it's not, you would give us confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you help us to have relationships that reflect the reality of this text where both have been made one. Lord, would you make our relationships more diverse so that our church can be more diverse? Not for sentimental reasons, not for liberal guilt, not because of anything else, Lord, but because that is what honors you. Because you died to tear down the wall of hostility between peoples. And would you do this, Lord, for your glory, for the spreading of your kingdom in Orangeburg? And Lord, if our past as a people is an impediment to the gospel, would you burn that reality into our hearts and drive us to legitimate repentance? We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.